If a law enforcement officer asked you to hand over your phone, would you do it? This week on Download This Show, thousands of phones have been handed over to Border Force. But what do the rules actually say? And then what is the reality of those power dynamics? Plus, how battery life got Apple sued, Instagram launched new controls for parents, and we say goodbye to one of the most influential pieces of software in the history of the internet. What is it? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Alice Clark, freelance journalist. You've read her work in The Age, The Oz, many, many, many other things. Welcome back to Download The Show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. And Access Informatics head honcho. That's right. He's the head honcho <laughs> of Access Informatics. <laughs> Peter Marks, welcome back to Download This Show. I'll get my staff to thank you later. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'd expect a memo in triplicate. Uh, lots of strange stories to get through this week. But uh, Peter, why is Apple being sued? Yes, a complaint has been filed in the UK with the Competition Appeal Tribunal on behalf of 25 million UK iPhone users who are seeking damage, a damages payout from Apple of around £768 million for deliberately slowing down older phones. Now, the motivations ascribed to Apple are that they wanted to avoid any uh, recalls or repairs and maybe you know people always suspect their phone gets slow to kind of push them towards uh, upgrading to the latest new phone. But specifically, this was triggered by a software update that included a new power management tool in 2017. It affected iPhones from 6 to 8, so they're getting pretty old now, and right up to the first iPhone 10. Now, note that there is some history in this. Apple paid out $113 million in the US to, to settle a similar case in 2020. So they're giving it a go in the UK as well. So where do we say deliberately slowed it down? Like, what does that actually mean, Alice? So this made it so the processor wouldn't run as fast, so it wouldn't chew up as much battery. So things would take a little bit longer to open. Maybe graphics wouldn't be as good. Uh, It's basically all the things that would make your phone be slow and not as fun. So, Peter, you know, when we say deliberate, I mean, does does that mean that they did it with an intention to kind of force you to buy a new one or does that mean they did it to preserve the battery? Like, Because deliberate can mean it's quite a loaded term, you know? Yes, and of course the problem is Apple's incredible secrecy. They didn't tell anyone about what this software update did and uh, it turns out that what was happening was that when older phones with a battery that was somewhat worn out got the new operating system, it would try and do something that used a lot of battery power and in some cases the phones would just shut down because the battery would go, eh, can't can't cope with it anymore. So Apple would see that. They know if your phone has shut down without you actually shutting it down yourself. So what they did was, it all makes sense when you know about it, is that they would say, if your phone has shut down because of the batteries given out doing something, we will throttle it, we'll slow it down so that that doesn't happen anymore. So in retrospect, it sounds like a good idea. And Apple argues that rather than actually trying to shorten the life of your phone, they're actually lengthening the life of their phone, of people's phones. But the problem is that they didn't explain to people what they were doing. They didn't give any reason for that. I mean, batteries have a lifetime. They wear out. You can get them replaced. But Apple, because they're so secretive, they didn't say anything. In the end, Apple CEO Tim Cook took a highly unusual step in 2018 of apologising. And he said they would never do anything to shorten the life. 
but uh, normally they just don't say anything. Now, to their credit, what they've done in recent releases is there's now a battery setting that tells you the health of your battery in the phone and also tells you if throttling is being done. Mm. Alice, those protestations from, from Apple senior management at the time, do they stack up to you? Not really. Like it, it, it makes a bit of sense, but also the cynic in me knows that Apple is a company that makes most of their money from selling products. Of course, part of it is to shorten the lifespan of your product. Like it just, it's very nice, the idea of saving battery life, but if you're not explaining that and if you're not giving people the option to turn that on and off, then really you're just pushing someone to buy the next phone. Do you think we'll see a change of behaviour from not just Apple but other hardware providers off the back of events like this, Alice? I think they might be tempted to start saying more things in the notes, but also these fines and these payouts are a drop in the bucket. Um, but I think it is really important that we don't make people feel afraid or concerned about doing software updates because they are so important. You need those new security updates to keep your data safe or to keep you safe. So this is, has damaged things. Hopefully they change moving forward, but I doubt it. Certainly um, Apple itself, Beta, has, has changed how they communicate. You were talking about that earlier. But are there, there more changes you'd like to see in terms of how, again, not just Apple but other hardware providers communicate software updates to the users? Yeah, sure. But look, you know, all of these devices have a certain lifespan and, um, you know, you pay more for an Apple iPhone than you do for most of the cheaper Android devices. And the cheaper Android devices don't get upgraded for, for very many years. The oldest currently supported iPhone right now is the 6S. Now, that was released six years and nine months ago. That's a long time in the life of smartphones. Older devices, of course, still work, but they don't get the software updates. So I think in the end, they're doing the right thing. It's, as you said, it's about the communication. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Alice Clark and Peter Marks. Mark Fennell is my name. And did you know that Border Force can compel people to hand over their phones? And in fact, they did that for a staggering 40,000 mobile devices over a period of five years. Why, Peter? Why does Border Force do this? Well, uh, this this story's sort of been around. It was it was uh, it came up back in April when Border Force admitted to the Senate that even though they were stopping people and taking their phones, they there's no legal obligation for people to hand over their passcodes. They say that they were looking for things like uh, illegal pornography, terrorism related material and media that has been or would be refused classification. Now, what they're doing is they're saying to people, give us your phone and give us the passcode. And they're not legally actually able to uh, compel you to give the passcode, but what they're doing is they're saying, if you don't give us the passcode, we're going to take your phone and presumably put it on one of these um, phone hacking bits of software and hardware. And so people at the border are kind of under pressure. If you're going out somewhere, you're worried about missing your flight. If you're coming home, you're probably jet lagged, you, you know, you're exhausted. And these people say, give us your passcode, it'll be really quick. But what we know now is that they actually, even if you do give the passcode, they take your device away from you, out of your view, into another room, 
and then they put apparently put the device onto flight mode and they removed the SIM. Now, presumably, this is done to prevent you from doing a remote lock or wipe while they're looking at your device. And iPhones in particular seem to give them trouble. They have special me- measures. If you won't give your passcode, they'll take all of your devices. And I guess that's they might be able to get your iPhone back up off your Mac or something if they can't. But we know that they use software and hardware that's used by various um, intelligence agencies. Uh, software is MSAB, Grayshift, and Cellbrite. I don't know. Have you watched The Lincoln Lawyer on um, Netflix, the TV no, show? No, no, I haven't. There's actually a scene in that where they nick someone's phone. They do a fake um, uh, roadway stop. They grab the guy's phone, and there's somebody sitting inside a car with the Cellbrite, actually the gear. So it's quite accurate and up-to-date. So this is the stuff that's used by um, uh, various states around the world who are trying to clamp down on, uh, uh, you know, alternative views about their governments and things. So it's, you know, it's not a great sort of area to be playing in here in Australia. And as you say, 41,410 times this has been done. This is huge. Mm. So the Guardian Australia has written up a bit about this. And I think one of the most fascinating parts to me, Alice, is that I didn't realise this, but officers must not suggest that people are compelled to respond. But in the context of how you encounter a border force officer, you know, where, as Peter was saying, you know, they can take things away from you, they can prevent you from entering a country, there's all these powers in place. To pretend like there isn't a coercive component to that dynamic is kind of naive, right? It's completely naive. Of course, if you are in a small room, you're jet lagged, you just want to go home or you want to get to your flight and there's an armed officer saying, give me your passcode or I will take your phone and your laptop and all of your other devices and maybe give them back to you in 14 days-ish. That's not really giving you a lot of options there. And also the powers are so broad because when they say things that might be refused classification, that includes a lot of very popular video games that are refused classification in Australia but are sold widely overseas, like Hotline Miami. The The excuses seem to be a bit too broad and not enough oversight here to really avoid any overstepping. I mean, let's acknowledge for a second here that, you know, some of the issues that the border force and authorities are trying to tackle here, we're talking about child exploitation material, terrorism material. I don't want to be, I don't want to trivialize that stuff. Obviously Mm. there are some real issues to be navigated there. So I guess the question then becomes, Peter, is there better ways this can be legislated and managed? Have we learned anything from, from these new reports? Well, Kieran Pender, senior lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, characterises this form of surveillance as particularly intrusive and this practice of coercing people to volunteer passcodes is chilling. Um, And, of course, we've got to think about the collateral damage. Yeah, you know, no one argues with, you know, stopping child pornography or whatever. That's always kind of the, the, the thing that's thrown up there. But there are times when any of us may have material on our phones. And keep in mind, your phone is your whole life. It's got everything in there. You might be a journalist who's in contact with a whistleblower and you don't want that that contact information to be um, captured. Uh, You could be a lawyer or a doctor and you have client information that you are bound to protect. So there are perfectly good reasons why you might not want to have your phone scanned. Um, Interestingly, they say that um, in Border Force policy documents, they warn against copying anything from the device. But then they say extracting data from a device isn't considering copying, considered copying. So you huh? can take but you can't copy. <laughs> I, I know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess what they're That's saying... That's like the they living say definition they, of a grey area. 
Well, yeah. So I can only imagine that what they're doing is they're looking at metadata, but metadata could be your all of your contacts, of course, get pulled out of the phone. So these are examples where someone may not want to uh, to give up their device for good legal reasons. They have a responsibility not to let it be scanned. So what can you do? I mean, I guess if you're crossing a border and you're a bit worried, then you could take a burner phone, just get a disposable phone, don't log into any of your accounts and use that while travelling. Or one thing, of course, you know, our phones, Android and iOS, both back up to the cloud. So it's not too hard to actually wipe your phone or make sure you backed it up, wipe your phone before crossing the border. Once you're at the destination, you can log back in and restore everything. Maybe that's the way to go. That is very dramatic for lots of people. Are there safeguards you think should be put in place, Alice, that, uh, that kind of push the onus back on the border force rather than necessarily users? Absolutely. I think they should need to get warrants. I think they should have to prove why they think they should be able to take somebody's devices. Because clearly, unless we have a significantly larger problem with child exploitation material or terrorism than we think, more than 41,000 devices in four years shows that there aren't enough steps. So let's make it harder for them to do it. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. And after 27 years, this is where I would play the funeral dirge, uh, Microsoft is retiring Internet Explorer, which Alice, I think for lots of people, would have been their first experience of the World Wide Web. It's actually kind of plays a, a crucial role in the Internet experience of surely millions, Alice. Absolutely. Up until, well, the mid-2000s, it was still accounting for almost 70% of internet traffic. I personally have very fond memories of opening up uh, Internet Explorer to download Netscape Navigator and then later <laughs> Firefox. It's, That's just something painfully part. cruel about that. Uh, my lasting memory <laughs> is I opened it up to download a competing browser. But it's a fair enough point, I guess, Peter. I mean, and, and it should be say, I should say that Microsoft uh, have a, a new browser called Microsoft Edge. So why is it that Internet Explorer was superseded, Peter? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, they did get hugely dominant. I think they were even 95% or more of, of the browsers being used at one point. So it was basically what happened was people built websites to work in IE, but the competing browsers got faster and they continued to adopt new internet standards. So in the end, we've come to a place where basically all websites work in Chrome, but they weren't necessarily working in IE. Now, as you say, they, they have pivoted. What they've done is they've produced a new browser called Edge, which is built on the Chrome engine, and they've been trying to encourage people to use Edge. Now, of course, what they've done is they've taken the Chrome or the, the Chromium source code, and they've added in all the Microsoft login sort of stuff to make it work with their, uh, their cloud stuff. But look... They were just they were slow to the party initially, and Mozilla became the dominant browser. Then they introduced IE, and of course they killed Mozilla by bundling IE. People, uh, Mozilla actually wanted you to pay them money. Um, they bundled IE, and there was uh, uh, a um, all sorts of court cases. You might remember years ago where Microsoft was made to pay up money because they'd sort of done this anti-competitive thing. Even today, it's funny when you are on a Windows machine and you use Edge 
to download Chrome. They pop up all of these things saying, oh, no, why don't you want to use a better browser? You should use Edge. And they keep popping up over Windows saying, you know, go back and use the right browser. So they've lost it because they didn't keep up with the technology. But the other big shift is to browsing on mobile devices. Microsoft's phone operating system came late and lost out to iOS and Android. Of course, iOS has the Safari browser and Android has Chrome. Most browsing today is via mobile, so all sites are built for these browsers and not for IE. So Microsoft lost the battle and IE going is part of that. That is an interesting idea that I hadn't really considered, that the um, the gradual decline of Microsoft's browser has a lot to do with their failure to break into the, the mobile market, right? So, you know, the dominant browsers are Google Chrome and obviously for people in the, in the Apple universe, Safari. Um, and that would have a lot to do with their mobile devices. Does that stack up to you, Alice? It absolutely does. But the other part of it is many organizations making employees use Chrome. So, for example, uh, at my mum's work, she can only use Chrome to access all of her work apps. And so that enterprise move killed any chance Internet Explorer had on PC and meanwhile, RIP Windows Phone, they tried, <laughs> and that's the important thing. That's interesting because like 10, 15 years ago, organizations, a lot of businesses would have forced you into the, the Microsoft universe. Like, I mean, still, mm. still, every time I get sent a Microsoft Teams invite, I cringe deep down inside. <laughs> there are still these like hangovers for it. Why is it that... that Chrome in particular, and I guess there are others as well. I don't want to say like it's the only one, but why is it particular that Chrome managed to kind of break into that space that, you know, was quite heavily dominated by by Microsoft and to some extent still is, Peter? Well, I think that uh, Google did a great job of, um, of pushing the browser forward. They made it faster. Remember, they used to have all these great uh, promotional videos where they'd have a, you know, show how quickly they'd uh, film it in high-speed cameras and show how quickly it rendered to the screen. And they really had, you know, great breakthroughs in performance. They made JavaScript run much faster. But remember that um, IE did introduce some important things. IE originally introduced the AJAX technology, which allowed a site to update parts of the web page without you needing to refresh the whole page. And that set the stage for these rich web 2.0, as they were called, web applications, things like email and banking. And it was great at the time. But things have gone further. We now have HTTP and HTTP3 and WebSockets. And Chrome was right there, as was Safari and Firefox at adopting the new standard. So Microsoft just got slack. I think once you get total dominant, you just don't keep up. So, you know, it, I think the decline after their almost total dominance is a lesson to all tech companies that no matter how dominant you are, you can be disrupted in the end. Does that stack up to you, Alice? Google is the first thing you think about when you think of searching, when you think of getting emails. So why wouldn't people take their browsers there if that's what they're thinking of using online? People no longer think of Microsoft as what they'll use for the internet, but just what they'll use to be able to navigate their files. Mm. Google has owned the internet. Truly. Here's a question. We know what are the most popular browsers, but mm. Peter... What is the best browser? What's the one where you're like, nah, that one's the one everybody should be using? Well, it's multi-factor choice, of course. So there's speed, there's memory use, and there's battery life. And I think that probably I would go with, if I'm on a mobile device, battery life. So on the Apple platforms, the Safari browser is the most efficient. 
Uh, one could argue that Apple, uh, by compelling all apps to use the Safari engine, uh, is being a bit uh, restrictive of competition and that may well end. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the European market um, introduces some requirements there. But yeah, when you say best, well, best for what? If you're using Google services, then obviously Chrome is better. I guess if you're using Microsoft services, then I would say probably Edge is the way to go. And Alice? Uh, if you're using Apple devices, yes, Safari is the way to go. I really like the way it blocks trackers. So, you know, how you have all those mm. pop-ups saying, will you accept cookies? It just declines them for you. You still have to press accept or decline, but you're still not getting tracked as much. And I think that's really important. Over on Microsoft and Windows PCs, I will always use Firefox. It owns my heart. Why Firefox it, over something like Chrome? Because Firefox isn't trying to sell all of my data to the highest bidder. Yep. No, which, I could see why that would, that would contribute. And not advertise to me. Yeah. But like Chrome is a very nice browser, but whenever I do it, I feel like, oh, I wonder how this will be used to advertise to me later. Whereas with Firefox, I'm like, ooh, I wonder which themes I can download because <laughs> it is still in my heart always 2001 and I want a new Winamp skin. <laughs> you can really like posit your age of the day, like you really you're, you're a particular era of the internet there. <laughs> Very much so. Anyway, finally here on the show, uh, Instagram is about to give a whole bunch of new controls to parents. Parents will be able to limit the amount of time their children spend on Instagram, be able to see follower lists and notified about inappropriate behavior. All of this is coming this week. Peter, uh, where has this come from? Well, uh, Instagram, of course, is part of Meta and, and the parent... Uh, of uh, Facebook, and they've been under sustained criticism for the damage they do to the self-esteem of some users. Internal research documents leaked by whistleblower Francis Haugen last year revealed that the company knows that damage is being done, in particular to teenage girls, and these young users experience declining mental health because they're endlessly scrolling through their Instagram feed. Now, note that the feed used to be just in chronological order, but they changed it to be algorithmically um, organised. And so that dishes up. And so these girls are seeing a feed full of images of people who are apparently better looking and happier than they are. Now, the company claims that the changes they're making are not in response to Haugen's criticisms, but part of their long-term work to protect young people. Right. Mm. Very plausible, Alice. Mm, I'm sure they're very concerned about young people, and that's why none of these new parental controls address the algorithmic timeline and instead focus on limiting the amount of screen time you can have, which you can already do in your phone's settings, and allowing you to see followers, even though you could probably already do that if you just followed your child on Instagram. I don't know. Actually, I think I actually think Instagram are very concerned about younger followers. I think they are very concerned mm. about ensuring that they have a, a pipeline of people. And, you know, like in broad terms, the changes that we're seeing here, I actually think are okay. I think that, I think they're they're worthwhile. They're useful. I guess it kind of comes down to what you're saying, Alice, is does it get to the core of the issue, right, Alice? Yeah, it really doesn't. Like what they're doing is good but it completely ignores the underlying systemic issue of Meta wants you to keep scrolling Facebook. They want you to feel angry. They want you to feel sad, not because they hate you and want you to be sad, but because they want you to keep going and those emotions will keep you locked in that doom scrolling. 
if you could at least select to just view the people you follow and just view that timeline, I think that would make a big impact because then you could just see your friends. These The parents who are looking after these kids, they can't imagine the impact this is happening on teenagers because we can barely deal with all the images we're getting every day and we didn't grow up with that kind of scrutiny. Instagram is like uh, the unrealistic models on magazine covers but all the time and with cyberbullying. And so if you could <laughs> just follow friends, it might be a bit easier. Yes, but sometimes your friends are the problem. I learned that by going to several years of high school. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I, I mean, I do, I, just to come back to these, these new changes, Peter, I mean, do you think these changes are a step in the right direction at the very least? Well, yes. So, you know, screen time can be limited and set to between 15 minutes and two hours. As Alice uh, points out, you can do that on the phone anyway. Breaks can be scheduled. Um, the app can be set up to only be used, say, outside school hours. Now, <clears throat> remember, with all of these things, both the parent and the child has to agree to have these turned on. So I reckon there's a fair number of cases where the kid will actually have uh, perhaps another account. I mean, you're not supposed to use Instagram unless you're uh, 13 years older, but it's clear that many younger children have somehow got through that block and just lied about their age. I think that, yeah, the problem is that they're trying to optimise for advertising dollars. So they're optimising the algorithm for whatever gets our attention. And I think that these algorithms that choose whatever gets our attention, which is, you know, things that make us emotional, either, as you say, sort of angry or, or you know, basically want to keep scrolling, this this algorithm on all of the social platforms is responsible for all sorts of evil in the world, including things like, you know, the amplification of conspiracy theories, including vaccine hesitancy during the pandemic, um, extremism, racism, eating disorders, and Donald Trump. Mm. So, you know, they need to take it further. They need to make the algorithm more socially responsible and not true, not totally just run by the advertising department. Now, in fairness to Meta, there are going to be some options where a trusted professional can step in. They'll have partnerships with um, eating disorder charities, mental health charities as well, and the safety commissioner is involved. So they, they have got involvement from a wide range of uh, parties as well. I think the part of this I find most fascinating is we as users of all different ages, not just young people, but, you know, right up into our demographic, I think we're all sort of recognising that that relationship with technology, with social media is another thing that can impact mental health. It can impact how we feel about ourselves and those around us. And we're all having to kind of manage that. And, and some people it's really fine. It doesn't matter. It's just a, a tool. And some people it can be kind of unhealthy. And I think some of, I think being given more tools to navigate that, I kind of appreciate, Alice. Maybe that makes me a bit Pollyanna-ish, but that's sort of how I'm taking it with the, the spirit with which it's intended. I appreciate the extra tools as well, uh, though it must be noted that the extra tools are being made by companies that are not meta and can be found on websites that are not Instagram, uh, which are really important and good. Uh to further Peter's point, I know a lot of young children who have burner Instagram accounts that their parents don't know about. And I had a computer in my room when I was 12 and certainly knew how to do maths so I could say I was 18 to access any kind of website I wanted. Uh, part of the problem is just that we don't 
know what this is doing and we don't know how to talk about it or deal with it because a lot of the time things that we think are self-care can actually be things that are symptoms of depression. For example, if you're having a self-care day by lying in bed and scrolling on Instagram, that also looks like a day where you can't get out of bed and just keep staring into the void. Whereas sometimes going on Instagram and looking at repeated videos of baby ducks is the best possible thing you could do to cheer you up. Mm. We need more tools to recognize which parts of the social media are good for us and which parts are bad, but we don't know enough yet to know which is which. That's really astute. I'm, I, I totally agree. You've just hit the nail on the head. Like the, that, it, it isn't inherently a problem or it isn't inherently a solution. It's, it's sort of a canvas upon which it all plays out. Huge thank you to Peter Marks from Axis Informatics. It's a joy to have you back on the show. Thanks, Mark. And Alice Clark, freelance journalist, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And with that, I shall leave you. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.